0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Primate Cast. After the tune, you'll hear another origin story. This time, Dr. Vernon Reynolds on the making of a field site
1: Evolution,
2: Communication, Cognition, Conservation, Behavior, Primatology, Primatology. 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 typically primates. Become the monkey. Well, hello,
0: everyone, and once again, glad to have you back here on the Primate Cast. This is podcast number 62, and it's being released on Saturday, January the 29th, 2022. Today's podcast is taken from our International Primatology Lecture Series, Past, Present, and Future Perspectives of the Field. This is, uh, as I mentioned previously, the brainchild of, child of Dr. Michael Huffman, and like our normal programming, is brought to you by Psychasp. The main goal of the lecture series is to share some origin stories of experienced practitioners in primatology and its related fields. To do that, uh, Mike Huffman's invited a revolving door of renowned primatologists to join us on the program and share their own stories with us. The Primate cast is pretty happy to be able to share those with you right here on the podcast. Now, unlike our normal interview format, these are recorded as part of the SciCast seminar series in science communication, which is aimed at graduate students here at the Primate Research Institute and Wildlife Research Center of Kyoto University. So what you're going to hear is a lecture from each speaker that was recorded in Zoom and is generally showing slides. So there might be references to visual aids that are not available in podcast format. But for anyone wishing to find out more or see the speakers presenting their talks um, by video, you can check those out on the SciCasp YouTube channel, and that's C-I-C-A-S-P. Today's lecture is the second in our series. It was recorded on July 7th, 2021. The timing of the podcast is actually pretty nice here because Vernon, our lecturer, is fresh off delivering a keynote at the Delayed International Primatology Society Conference because he was the most recent recipient of their Lifetime Achievement Award for 2020. Vernon spent most of his career as professor at Oxford University, and he's one of the most recognizable names in the field, in field primatology, especially in the context of African great apes. In this lecture, he talks about the making of the Bodongo Conservation Field Station— which has now been running for over 30 years and has become a real base of operations for various scientific explorations and conservation actions. So we hope you enjoy this episode from our international primatology lecture series. We'll provide links to this and other lectures in our series in the show notes on the podcast website. Here's Mike Huffman introducing Vernon to get us started.
2: Welcome everyone. Um, welcome Vernon. It's, it's a great pleasure and, and an honor to be able to introduce you, um, to our, our, our second. Um, lecture in in a series of of many to come, I hope. And for all of you listening in, um, I'd like to to let you know what what a pleasure and what an honor it is to introduce you to Vernon, who I've known for many, many years, since 1984, I think the first international primate conference that I attended, which was in Nairobi. I ran into Vernon at a local um, restaurant. I had skipped over for a um a meal for dinner and that's where i first actually got to talk to him but i was able to um read about his work started in in 1962 when he first went went to uganda to study the Wudongo chimps and something special about the work that he was doing 1962 was very very early on in chimpanzee research so he was he's one of the three people who were actually starting actively Um, studying wild chimps in the 60s. The first, of course, is Jane Goodall, started in 1960. And then um, Adrian Cortland was working in West Africa, close to the site of Bosu. And then Vernon and his wife, Frankie, went to Uganda. So some of the earliest things that I learned about chimpanzees was from his his work and Jane's work. Um, And over the years, um, we, we keep bumping into each other at, at meetings and things, and maybe the last, well, since he started working at Budongo, he, when he set up his long-term project, which he'll introduce to us all today, um, as he started to publish more on, on the work at Budongo, we came, became closer and closer in, into contact because we had several common interests. I was able to visit. Um, I sent a student over who spent some time there, Paula Pebsworth, and right now, in fact, a, a, a student from Oxford, where Vernon um, is, is from, um, is there with Kat Horbater. She's starting some field work there as well. So we've had a long friendship, a long connection with Budongo. And Vernon has really contributed a lot to what we know about chimpanzees, adding a different perspective from a, a different site, which is so important. Um, so I'll end here and I'll let um, Vernon explain his his fascinating work and, and the great contribution he's made to chimpanzee conservation. Vernon, I'll hand it over to you now. Thank oh, you. Thank
1: you Mike. Yes, Thank you so much um, for that lovely introduction. I'm um, very happy to be here and I think it's the first time I've certainly the first time I've done a webinar to, to and with you folk from Japan, so that's a great honor. All right. Uh, Well, um, so uh, this is just uh, the uh, poster, which I think you've seen already. It's been up in your in your uh, institute. uh, It shows our camp uh, and um, uh, I'll be this is what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to be it's going to be a friendly talk, not a highly scientific talk. This one It's going to be informal. I'll just tell you a bit about how I got involved. This is what Mike asked me to do. So this is what I'm doing and um, try and get uh, get a feel for what it's like, uh, you know, setting up a field station like this. Uh, Okay, so um, now let me see what happens if I press the down button. Nothing. Um, uh, I need to find how to move on to the next. uh... (laughs) This always happens. to the next slide, anybody got any ideas? Sorry, yeah,
0: it should be if you, there you go.
1: I've got it, I don't know how I got it, but I got it. Okay, Um, yeah, so people sometimes ask how did you get into all this chimpanzee stuff? And I I never know really the answer to that one, but, I think it was my son or or daughter, one of them suggested that, maybe it's something to do with the chimp uh, statue. Well, he's actually quite small. He's about 15 inches tall. A bronze, uh, here it is, and um, it shows a chimpanzee looking at a skull with a pair of calipers in his foot. He's actually sitting on some books and from the other side, you can tell what the books are. One is uh, Darwin and the other is the Bible. Uh, there's a lot of thinking went into that, and I, I must have perhaps thought about it when I first saw it. Uh, I think I was 14 when I first came across it. And it was done by a great uncle of mine uh, who uh, took to sculpture. Here's a picture of him reclining on a very strange chair, uh, or sort of halfway to being a chaise long, but it's a sort of chaise court. Anyway, great uncle Hugo um, was the, my uh, ancestor who, who did this statue has been copied many thousands or perhaps millions of times since, but he was the first. Now i plunge straight into uh, uh, the, my first bit of research which was on rhesus monkeys for my PhD. And uh, at that time I was reading the Japanese literature here you see some of the people whose works I've read. Uh, in, in Manishi, Itani, Sugiyama, Kawai, Kawamura. Um, I got their papers and read about them. They were uh, looking at your lovely Japanese macaques and, and I was looking at rhesus monkeys. Uh, that is actually a page from my old PhD, which I uh, uh, dug up. On the shelf here. But I really, um, I had this idea, you know, rhesus monkeys were, and I was at the zoo in Whipsnade Zoo in England for that, uh, part of London Zoo, so I wanted to get out to the wild and I wanted to see chimpanzees really, if possible, uh, and so Africa beckoned, and uh, my wife and I, we were in this together, we got married around that time, and uh, I sort of thought, let's go to Uganda. And here we are. Um, we started out uh, down here in Entebbe. We, we flew to Entebbe. And then uh, we went up to uh, uh, Kampala. Makerere University is the university there. We stayed there. And then we, we, we borrowed or got hold of a, a short wheelbase Land Rover. And we drove up to the forests uh, which are marked in black on the western side starting with the Bodongo forest then we went down to Bogoma forest we looked at Itwara, Semliki which is lovely, Uh, Kibali, Um, along the woods Zori we found uh, uh, a forest uh, Kasioha, Kitomi, um, and then Kalinzu—that's uh, your forest uh, where you've just come back from. Um, Furuichi has just come returned from Kalinzu. Uh, we went there. I, I still have a photograph from the Kalinzu forest, and uh, down to Bwindi, impenetrable forest in the south uh, west corner of Uganda, which was uh, very impenetrable, just like the name suggests. So when then we went back and thought about it, where would we like to make our field station? And we hit on, we said Bedongo. It was great. It wasn't too hilly. And also there was a, few, uh, in those days, there was a sawmill there. And the sawmill had, you know, made roads so we could get there, get right into the forest. They even had a telephone and um, a postal service. It was lovely. So we went uh, uh, We went after a little short spelling campaign, we went back to try and uh, study chimps in Bodonga. Now it's just a picture uh, to show you, Bodonga Forest, what it looks like from the satellite. <coughs> uh, Western Uganda, as you see, uh, Lake Albert there is the great uh, sheet of water uh, just to the west of us. Uh, then there's a rift here. This is a thousand uh, feet uh, climb up from the lake and on the top of the rift is, uh, because this is the rift valley here, uh, and the top of the rift is the Bedongo Forest. So there we are on the right, Frankie and me, as we were in 1962. Um, I'm afraid time has worked its uh, inevitable effects on uh, physical appearance, but never mind. That's the way it goes. And that's the little house they gave us. It was the forest department rest house. They gave us a little house and said, "There's nobody there. You can live in it." So we had a nice little house. I can actually see Frankie just there, looking out over the forest. Well, I never. It's the first time I've noticed that. <laughs> After we'd done our study, um, we, we were followed by two Japanese researchers. So for this talk, I've, I've, I've spotlighted them. Here is my old friend Yuki Sugiyama, who um, I would love him to be watching this uh, this talk if he's around. I hope he's there. And uh, he followed, he came along and, uh, in 65 or thereabouts, I might get the date slightly wrong, and studied chimps at Padongo, the same chimps we studied, but he named them and he got much further in his studies than we were able to do in our first study. He actually gave each chimp a name, which we never managed to do. And then the second, I haven't been able to find a photo of uh, Suzuki, although I've tried. Uh, He came along uh, and he was the first one to see infanticide in chimpanzees and he managed to photograph it. And if you find his original paper, um, you'll find photographs of uh, a a big male um, uh, uh, holding a dead baby chimp and eating it. Well, we came back from Uganda in 1965 and um, uh, wrote a book about it. I really enjoyed writing that book. It's a lovely, chatty book. If you manage to get hold of it, you'll enjoy it. It's a bit dated now, uh, but it describes the trip. And you know, it's a sort of romance of Africa type of book. But there's a lot of information about chimps in it, and it was the first study of forest living chimpanzees. So in that sense, we were pioneers. Jane Goodall a beat beat us to it, <laughs> but she wasn't in a tropical rainforest. She was in a, 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 an area with Uh, some grassland as well as some tree cover and of course she became immensely famous uh, at Gombe. Now unfortunately for us not long after we left Uganda (coughs) a certain gentleman here uh, by the name of Idi Amin uh, took power in Uganda uh and uh rarely i mean you could say single-handedly destroyed the country he he made life very very difficult for uh, anybody he didn't like uh up to the point of of torturing and killing them so he was a nasty bit of work and he's i didn't want to go as a matter of fact i was invited to go back by not by i didn't get him on the line himself but his his, his, his number two man invited me to come to Uganda because they'd read the book. And um, <clears throat> I said, no, because by then I had two children to think about. So and no more trips to Uganda. But then uh, as time went by, I heard that chimps, you see, Uganda had broken down. I heard about chimps, chimp babies being trafficked, being poached. Being caught, the mother's killed, baby put in the back of the car, drive to Entebbe Airport, send it somewhere, get money, get money, and uh, I thought this is not good enough. So I lay there in my bed. Um, I'm not sure if that's actually me, and uh, <laughs> I thought about going back and even maybe set up a field station. But you know you think about doing these things what do you do about it so i, I didn't know where to start but i was pretty determined to do something <clears throat> and i'd heard all about these big ngos you know world wildlife fund and so on and i thought well <clears throat> they will they will love to give me money for a field station i want to travel out there i need money for the airfare I wanted. I didn't want to use my own money. You know, I wanted to try and raise the money from sources, as we all do in primatology. Anyway, uh, got absolutely nowhere with the big, uh, the big organisations which we which we know about, which have me- much money, but they've they have committed their money in other directions. Nobody has got any spare money, but I needed the money to build a field site which I was determined to do and employ staff of course to keep it running and that means ongoing money uh, quite apart from travel for myself and other people. <clears throat> well I got some help eventually when people heard about it and it was the smaller organisations, lovely little organisations which support conservation came to my rescue and gave me hundred pounds, two hundred pounds, five hundred pounds. It was it was terrific. I felt uh, you know at last the gates were starting to open. And then <clears throat> after um, after about a year, uh, I, I, I managed to raise proper money uh, to do something a bit bigger from the ODA, which is our un uh, our um, our British government. Um, Overseas Development Administration, uh, Department for International Development it's called now, uh, which had a forestry section and it was through forestry that I managed to um, uh, raise the funding to get the thing going and later on after British government said you've had enough Norway came in and NORAD has also a big interest as you know probably in forestry so they came along and they helped. So I went back to Uganda and we got to Entebbe uh, in 1990. And uh, straight away, I was told to go and see a, a couple, young couple, who had these two baby chimps in their garden. They were looking after them, feeding them. These two little babies were taken from Bodongo Forest, shoved in the back of a car, taken to Entebbe Airport traveled to Dubai, where there was an order for them, for pets, confiscated, most of course got through, but these two were confiscated at Dubai airport, put back on the plane, sent back to Uganda, and they were in Entebbe when I met them there. Lovely pair of little baby chimps from Bedonga. but of course, Terribly tragic that that trade was going on. Fortunately, it's stopped now, pretty much stopped. I very much hope it's completely stopped, but I doubt it. <clears throat> well, the first thing to do, uh, I realized my short visits to Uganda, you know, I went for two or three weeks. Actually, I went for six weeks originally, but then I had shorter trips. Was the first thing I had to do was get a, a field director for the project. And it happened that this guy, Chris Bacanita, was available. He had just finished his master's uh, degree at Macquarie, and um, Professor Pomeroy uh, pointed him to me and said, Chris is a good man. He will help you and uh, set you up. Uh, uh, and there he is uh, uh, with his wife and newborn child. I think that might be a little bit after... 1990, but not long after. Uh, Chris married, peace, and uh, they had a baby. But that's that's Chris, our first uh, director of the project. And he said, Vernon, you can't run a project on chimpanzees without field assistants. So I'll get you some. So between one trip and the next, he managed to hire six field assistants, of whom you see two there. <coughs> Zephyr is uh, Zephyr Kiwedi, who has been with our project right up to this year. Unfortunately, he retired this year. Uh, And Joseph, who is still working on chimps, but with Jeanette Wallace in the Kosokwa region. Um, They're two of our early field assistants. And there you see they've got the binoculars. They have the check. uh, We used to take our records on, on check sheets. You can probably see here uh, Joseph is holding a a board, a clipboard with the other side of that will be his check sheet and he's got his pen in his hand. That's how we recorded data about the chimps. So 1990, I would say, was the year when we founded what was then called the Bodongo Forest Project. and. Well, everybody has a picture like this. It's just awful. Once the rain comes down, the roads turn into uh, a sort of quagmire and you get stuck, stuck, stuck. But we were always great. uh, People came to help. That's Chris uh, with the trying to do something for the Land Rover and um, being helped by someone. And then... 1990, back in, in 1990, uh, to my amazement, I and mean, it really was totally amazing, I met with a tracker who came uh, who came with us in 1962. He was still there, 1990. A lovely guy called Manwary came from Buambo down in the southwest. And he was still living there, but he was an old man. He couldn't see properly, but he said, uh, you know, welcome, Bwana, he called me. "Buana, I'm coming with you. And he just uh, never, never let me go after that. He stayed with me the whole time I was, I was there. And there is Manwari again with Chris. Now, this is unfortunate, you see. Bodonga was the big mahogany forest for Uganda. Tons and tons of mahogany, beautiful mahogany, were exported and it was done in a sustainable way by the British uh, foresters. They had a 60 year cycle to go around the forest, taking the older trees. And when the British left with Idi Amin coming to power, it all fell apart. Illegal logging got started then. And by the 1990s, it was everywhere. This is a pit sawing site, a pit is dug, a tree is felled, it's raised up onto the poles and vertically it is sawn into planks. The planks are put on a truck and sent out of the forest. And we hit that full on when we came back to Bodongo, the the mahogany trade, two or three trucks of mahogany a day going out of the forest. Totally unsustainable. All the forest, um, all the mahogany uh, has gone and, and and it went in about a, a five or ten years. It was all gone. Well, life was simple in those days. We, uh, we managed to get a stove, you see it, and cook some, boil some water and perhaps boil some eggs. I don't know what's in that, that little pot, maybe a bit of chicken. Um, the guy sitting there with the blue trousers was our cook. So simple life. And the house which uh, Chris had found for us to turn into our headquarters looked like this in 1990. It was the remains of one of the sawmill houses. The sawmill was disbanded and dis- and, and, and ab- abandoned, I should say, during the Edi Amin period. Everything went wrong and um, we, You see the two ladders there? We had already started renovating in 1990. This was going to be our project headquarters. And there were some other little outhouses uh, which we had to take to uh These were the staff quarters and we managed to make some nice staff quarters. Then along came Andy Plumtree. He was um, our first Mozungu, otherwise known as British or uh, non-Ugandan um, uh, director. So we made him a co-director with with um, uh, with Chris Bacanita. They were co-directors for six years and ran the project together. Andy was a superb scientist. He had his PhD in in uh, done on gorillas. Um, and he was uh, the guy who led the scientific research, stayed in Dodonga for six years uh, until he moved on. He's now very senior man in WCS uh, uh, working out of Cambridge. And then our our chief builder was Richard Odonto, a great guy from Northern Uganda with a fantastic sense of humor. Hugely hardworking, and uh, on top of all that, he managed to look after the funding of the building operation uh, very honestly, and um, managed to get everything cheap for us. My son Jake came out to help uh, with uh, renovations. You see him there, <coughs> removing some old wiring from. You see, they used to have electricity uh, once upon a time, and so Jake was doing. Uh, this wire uh, cutting out all the old wires, as you see there. And then all of a sudden there was a flash and a mighty bang and smoke started pouring out of the ceiling. And we, we realised that there was still electricity in those wires and we couldn't understand it. And then someone said, oh, well, of course, you're connected to the generator. Well, we said, generator? Yes, they said, go down to the river. Went down to the river, at the river we found... A little old man who had been, every day he started the generator for 15 minutes, which used to be the one for the sawmill, until the sawmill packed up uh, in the 1970s. And every day since then, he was hoping to get paid. So he came and started, and he started it just when Jake was cutting the wires. So poor Jake nearly died, the house nearly burnt down, and we'd nearly lost everything. But we didn't. Then my daughter, our daughter, uh, Janie, came out. uh, You know, it was sort of family operation, first of all. And Janie made a lovely film of the project as it came along. And the chimps, she's there filming the chimps. So it was absolutely lovely in those days. We had to have a show, but I'm glad to say neither my son nor my daughter had to build that. We got a a hardworking Ugandan to do it. The chow is the latrine they use in Uganda, a very fine way of uh, doing uh, a toilet. Once you've dug the hole, you put um, uh, boards over it, and on those boards you set concrete, uh, uh, cover it with a cement screed, and uh, then make a hole in the middle, and there's your toilet. And it's uh, very good, and they last for years and years and years. No smell, nothing, if you keep them clean. uh, Fantastic and then disaster. You can see what happened. Those are the new staff houses. We had just built them. They were not yet occupied by our staff, and there was a tree with a branch overhanging those houses, and the figs, it was a fig tree, and the figs kept dropping off the tree and banging down onto the iron sheets, which formed the roofs of the houses, and the people who lived in them said, we can't sleep at night because these figs keep dropping. Please get rid of that tree. So we called in a man to fell the tree. And what did he do? He felled it on the houses after having said um, he could. He was a brilliant, skilled uh, tree feller and he would fell it into the forest. So actually, he felled one of the branches uh, directly down on, and we lost three houses. So we had to do them again. I was there at the time so it rather sticks in my memory. And it's not a photo I really like to look at. So let's move on. Uh, That was the picture we started with, wasn't it, on the poster at the front? It's, um, the thing in the middle is called a banda. It's a wonderful thing. You find them in Uganda, probably all over East Africa, maybe elsewhere. Straw roof, low brick wall, open for the air to pass through. You can't see them, but there are chairs inside. You sit around talking and drinking beer and have a good time in the evening in the Banda. Uh, most places have them in Uganda. And that's one of the renovated houses. It's not actually the one you saw before, but it's uh, that's what the houses look like after renovation. We renovated two houses originally. Now we have about 10. And there's me and Frankie uh, in the forest in 1992. Frankie came out to join us and see how the project was going along. And incidentally, she's somewhere downstairs watching it now. Well, the first thing we needed was, um, well, not the first thing. (laughs) The second thing we needed was a new director because Chris had to go. And uh, 1996, we got um, a guy who had already done a study uh, of chimps at Bodongo. Uh, no, of the forest. He didn't study chimps. He was a forester. And he made a study of the forest at Badonga And then he, he was so keen on Badonga and he, he wanted to stay on. And he was such a, a brilliant guy. We said, OK, we, we, and we appointed him as the new director. And he still is the top man at Bodongo, although he, he's a senior man in Macquarie University now but he comes to see us once a month in Badonga. And then we got this question, I hope you can read it. Who do you belong to? Now this question came from the forest department, the people who owned the land that we had had built our camp on. And we were busy working away, studying chimps, students were arriving, we had money. And then the forest department said to me, the head of a forest department in Kampala said to me one day, because I always used to go and report on progress to him, who do you belong to? Well, it's quite a, a question to get asked and we hadn't really thought too much about it. We thought, well, we're doing okay. But you have to belong to someone If you want to stay in a foreign country, you have to be in the institutional network of that country. Were we part of Oxford University? No. Were we part of Macquarie University? No. Were we part of the Forest Department or the National Forest Authority? No. The Zoological Society of Scotland was providing us with money in those days. They still do. Our core funding comes from uh, Edinburgh Zoo, but we weren't a part of Edinburgh Zoo. We were really just an independent project, studying chimps, and that wasn't good enough. We needed a link. And I wanted the station to be Ugandan anyway. I didn't want it to be an expat project, expatriate project. I didn't want it to be a British project. I want it to be a Ugandan project. So we became Ugandan. In 2007, Fred Babuatera, our guy, the guy you saw just then, sat down with members of the Forest Department, other branches, of the Ministry of Environment and whoever necessary. And we hammered out a constitution for ourselves with a board of directors and we became a Ugandan NGO, which was exactly what I had wanted and Fred did it. But they said, you're a project. You can't be an NGO. Projects are not allowed. So we had to change our name and we called ourselves the Bodongo Conservation Field Station and changed our logo a little bit. So instead of saying Bodongo Forest Project, it now says Bodongo Conservation Field Station. OK, so this is Gershom. Now, I want to mention him especially because uh, I showed you a photo of Zephyr earlier. He was one of our first field assistants and so was Gershom right back from 1990 to the present day. Gershom is still at the project. He knows so much about the forest and the gems. I think all of us who've done fieldwork know how extremely valuable it is to have someone like that who knows everything. And Any question you have, however small you might have one leaf, you go to Gershom, what tree is this? He tells you. And then, of course, I've been talking about chimps, but we haven't seen any yet. Our second adult, when I first started, I never really got—well, I have got photos, but not so good uh, because we weren't—they weren't—we um, couldn't get close to them in the early days. Our second alpha male was Dwayne, named incidentally, and Mike will, will know just who I'm talking about. Uh, after Dwayne Quiet, who used to visit our project in those days. I have to say the late Duane Quiet because he just unfortunately died. A great primatologist. Um, anyway, Duane, the alpha male, was named after him and uh, there he is. And then he was followed by Nick, who was a great male too, but and it, uh, he lasted several years until quite recently. Uh, he was never quite the same calibre as Dwayne. Uh, he, was, uh, he wasn't quite so tough, you know. He, he was tough enough to be alpha, but not tough enough, really, to, to frighten the neighbouring group, for example. He used to run away. So uh, he had some weak points. And he's been succeeded again now more recently by Jimbo. I think it's Harwa at the moment. I must check, Uh, uh, but I don't have a photo of him. However, I want to show you this one, chimps at camp. Um, We have, uh, 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 in those first uh, five years, from 1990 to 95, we got to know every chimp, and we, we had begun to habituate them. The adult males get habituated first, And then after them, usually some of the younger males and then um, slowly, slowly, the adult females and last of all, the mothers with their infants. And by now, by about, I would think, by the year 2000, we had habituated all the chimps in our community. Now, when I say our community, I mean the sonso community. And our camp is the Sonso camp, and they're named after the river Sonso, which runs past uh, our camp. We've since then, during the 2000s, we've habituated a second community um, to the north, called the Wybera community. But for the first 10, 15 years, it was just the Sonso community and of course, with our camp being in them, as we later discovered, we had our camp was right in the middle of their range. Their range was to the north, south, east, and west of us. We were slap in the middle of their range. I mean, they were decent about it; they didn't complain. And eventually, they came out and said, uh, "You know, okay, you can live here." And they walked across the the, the, the camp from one side to the other, and they. Nowadays, if you go to Badonga, uh, you're pretty sure that one, one day or another, chimps will come around camp. So it, we have a good relationship. We, we have now raised our distance. Minimum distance was seven metres. Never get closer to a chimp than seven metres because they will come close to you if you want, but we don't let that happen. And uh, we've raised it to 10 metres advice uh, uh, to do with Covid uh, which touch wood we have avoided so far and uh, we've taken very many measures to avoid that but I'm jumping ahead a bit I don't want to lose my track. Now I just want to say about the community because as time passed in Bodongo running the camp running the Land Rover up and down the road past the village. The village people would look at us and we would wave. And they sometimes waved and sometimes they didn't. The kids always waved, but the grown-up men didn't wave so much. And we started to realise that we weren't helping the community. Uh, We were being pretty selfish. So we instituted um, a series of measures which would enable us to get to know the community, work with the community, mix with the community, not just by their chickens and their eggs, but also talk to them, sit down with them. And we started up a scholarship programme. So the clever children from the schools, the ones that the head teacher said were the top children, could get a scholarship, and it came with a little bit of money and, uh, and uh, as you see, a piece of paper, and they, there we are. Oh, I don't know if that's about 2003. I can't see the date, unfortunately, because the pictures are in the way. Um, <clears throat> we started, uh, there's Fred on the left, whose idea it was, and the, the, the three children, uh, I only know one of them, but in the middle is Zephyr our head field assistants at the time, and um, posing for their photo in front of our renovated house one. That was the main house, the one you saw at the start in a dilapidated state. So that was our first move towards the community, and it was so important, very much appreciated. And you you do one little thing and word goes around. Well, we also uh, went into the local schools and we talked to the children about chimpanzees and uh, conservation, a word they had never heard and couldn't understand. Um, and about everything we could think of, or we got them to draw pictures. We even got them to exchange scrapbooks with our children in the local school here uh, in England. But uh, I don't know what you can see. If you can see what I can see, you can see staring eyes. And those children are not like our English children and probably not like your Japanese children. They are scared and frightened, what's the big man going to do? And so I could give them a talk for for 15 minutes about chimpanzees and they would ask me, what's that white hair growing on your face? Why are you so old? And they would say, what is the queen of England, tell us about the Queen. So I realized after a while that you can stand and talk to those children. They've never heard anything like it. They're not thinking about what you, they're scared. You might do something and they might get punished if they move. But slowly, slowly, those children started to relax. And I think after two or three years, five years, We could go into schools, and we do now. We go into schools, and they know us, and we know them. We give them some support. We give them some money. We made concrete floors for some of them because they only had dirt. We gave some of them benches. And, you know, if we've got any spare money, we improve their latrines, etc. That's what happens. And then you get going. You know the community. But having said all that nice, friendly, lovely stuff, It isn't like that. Human-wildlife conflict, that lovely chimp, one of our best males, Jambo, went into the sugarcane field to get some sugarcane and a guard of the sugar with a spear killed him. Not long after that, we decided we needed a vet. And we, we're very fortunate we obtained a lovely, very skilled and superb vet called Carolina Simwe, who was newly graduated from Makerere University. She came up to Bodongo and she's been with us ever since. And she's the person who does our vet work. Well, it's a messy business. The uh, farmers around Bodongo, quite apart from Spears, they have a use of the trap, which is actually illegal, but the word illegal doesn't mean much because there's no police. The trap is set around people's gardens to stop crop raiding. That's the big problem, crop raiding. That's one of the big problems. And a chimp got caught in a trap and there's Carol on the right and she's been helped by some vet interns because we get interns coming up from Macquarie for training. Uh, I don't know what she's had to do there. She's removed the trap, certainly, but I can't see quite what's going on. (coughs) Anyway, in some cases, unfortunately, you have to amputate. But most times a chimp can... um, have its have its wound dressed and they survive sometimes they lose the use of a hand or a foot if they might even lose the whole foot in the trap but they um, they they do uh, usually survive and sometimes even get the use of their hand or foot back now much more common than the trap is the snares These snares, here we are talking uh, 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 about snares, but these snares are very real and they're being put in the forest, Bodonga forest every day. I wish I could say that that had stopped, but it hasn't. It still happens. And every month I get the statistics from Bodonga, how many snares they've removed. These are our snare removers. Those are the snares. And there's a chimp with a snare on its hand Uh, can you see its hand is curved round there's what we call claw hand it happens to humans as well and if they get of course in humans it's usually people get their hand caught in a door or a window uh, and somehow squeezed and the tendons and muscles and nerves of the wrist get destroyed and the hand goes into a claw shape And there, uh, that poor old chimp has got there. Now, it may bite it off, it may get it off, but whether it will recover its hand, I don't know. So there's our snare removal team in 2013. Ex-hunters themselves turned conservationists. So they knew where to find snares, how do people put snares on. And uh, surprisingly, they were not ostracized in the village. They still lived in the village with the people putting the snares. Um, they were known to be snare removers. Uh, I thought they might get into trouble, but they didn't. It, uh, Ugandans are able to cope with that. So we decided, what should we do? And We called a meeting of the hunters. There they are on the left. These are not our staff. These are village people. They came to camp. They thought maybe we'll get money, I don't know. They came to camp, they'd heard we wanted a meeting of all the people who put snares in the forest, you will not be punished. So they came to the meeting and we explained to them, we will give you goats if you stop putting snares in the forest, go away and think about it. If you have goats, we'll give you two nanny goats, two female goats each, We'll bring a male goat round. You can make a goat herd. You can have meat forever. Just stop putting snares in the forest and getting the wild animals. Keep goats. And it was very successful. I would think two thirds of all hunters signed up for that. They promise that they would not put snares in the forest if we gave them goats. And also we said, we'll bring the vet round and look after your goats. So we had a lot of success with that. Some didn't want to have anything to do with it. They smelt a rat or detected a trap of some sort. But there was no trap. It was a genuine move. Unfortunately, I have to say, some of those guys cheated on the scheme and we had to introduce a rule that once they cheat, found cheating putting snares as well as having goats. They lost their privileges, they lost their goats and they would never be allowed to take part in the scheme again. So there was a little uh, stick as well as a carrot for that scheme. Well, first, uh, 40 years after I wrote my first book, which you saw earlier, there was a new one. And there we see, if you get that book or find it in your library, you'll find uh, lots of information about the Bedonga chimps up to year 2005, when I handed over as uh, scientific director to Klaus Superbühler from Switzerland, who is still our scientific director today. Um, Sometimes you don't know What's going to happen? Oh, a lot of the time, actually. And uh, on this occasion, I didn't know uh, I would be drawn into research myself because I'd been largely managing the project. It's a full-time job, you know, when you set up a project manager. Uh, but I did a little bit of uh, behavioural research, but mainly not. And then there was something going on. We saw it all through the 1990s, and we didn't know what it was. that's a young raffia tree I couldn't get a big one uh, because it couldn't fit it in but can you see the the tree is growing here these are the raffia leaves young ones those those leaves grow enormous 60 feet long and they're used for raffia string it grows in swamp forest in Uganda and when the tree dies The top falls off and the trunk becomes hard, very hard. But the trunk doesn't fall down. It stays up like a sort of chimney. And the chimps make a hole in the bottom of the tree with their teeth and their fingers, they gradually work away. They work hard to make this hole. And this is, they, they then put the hat when they can, they get a finger or a hand. Eventually they put the hand in the hole pull out the pith, the dead pith from the inside of the raffia palm and chew it. They put it in their mouth and chew it, chew it, chew it, chew it, chew it it, and spit it out. And here is a spat out bolus or we call them a wadge. That's my pocket knife to give you an idea of size. A wadge of chewed raffia pith. And that's there for Nambi, there's a hole here um, uh, and they're getting their hands in it. Sometimes two chimps feed together. That's our, it's a couple of our chimps feeding on the pith. Why make a hole? Same picture. Why make the hole? Why chew the pith? What are they getting? So we collected watch samples. I brought them back to the UK. And the University of Brighton, which is quite near where I live, uh, had had, uh, facilities for measuring the mineral elements. We wanted to see if there's any minerals in there, because we knew that animals and chimps, all primates eat minerals. Andrew Lloyd, Professor Andrew Lloyd at uh, the University of Brighton, did the analysis, masterminded it. And uh, you see there, I won't go into it, the way that the uh, samples were uh, analysed, and we found the answer. There was salt in the pith. We had no idea. They were getting sodium chloride, a high level of sodium, and we also found chlorine in the neighbouring surrounding pith. So... Sodium chloride was being formed in the pit, And there is just a slide from my paper, or our paper, I should say, uh, 2009. Um, and, and Mike wrote to me and said, well done, Vernon, that's a very interesting uh, study. Um, on the left, the big bar here, this is sodium, levels of sodium in the raffia only and this is all the rest of the diet, very little sodium in it. And we've never found anything else since with such a high level of sodium as the raffia. Well, I'm reaching the end of my talk here. And I just wanted to say, mentioned that we do have a website, just put in Budonga or there's the full website there. That's the front, front page of the website. It probably needs a bit of updating but it's it's a good site. You can find a lot about our work, who who we are, what we've published and all the rest of it on the website. So I do encourage you to have a look at it. And as always, we have to acknowledge our funding sources. Our main funding today comes from uh, Scotland, the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, otherwise called the Edinburgh Zoo. And we also have a lot of help now from Oakland Zoo in the States. Plus the Arcus Foundation has been tremendously generous. Darwin Initiative, National Geographic, Conservation International, and so on. And my own work, in fact, on the uh, Raffia Pith was funded by the Mohammed bin Zayed Fund for Conservation of Species. So I believe that's the end of my talk. It is. Thank you all very much for listening.
0: You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to all things primatology and wildlife research, to the conservation of species, and to the dissemination of scientific knowledge. The podcast is brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at the Kyoto University Primate Research Institute. Visit us online at theprimatecast.com and follow our social media feeds on Facebook and Twitter at The Primate Cast.